0: I do worry about losing that connection, but I am also hopeful that I will not lose that connection. One way of sort of maintaining this connection as a, as a modder, for example, of a popular mod is sometimes when I code something, you know, or I, or I design a diagram or a, a flow for a mission tree, I will jump on a voice channel and I will just share my screen. I will say, hey, I'm streaming, coding. If you guys want to watch and maybe catch a few uh, early looks at what I'm working at, uh, you can join and people join. People join, uh, five, six people, but they join and we have a good time talking about it. You know. Now, I understand that the, the scale will be a little bit different uh, from catering to a few thousand players to catering to maybe a million players. I worry about that, but I'm hopeful I'm not gonna change who I am or how I approach things I am fully aware that I will not be able to satisfy a hundred percent of the community. I Would settle for a good 80 85 percent. There's always gonna be voc- vocal people I mean I used to be one, you know, you go through that phase maybe not to a weird extent, but I've been there, so I understand it. Um, the important thing is to not lose sight of that there are people behind the games. There are human beings that sleep and eat and talk and are friends. And they want to the game to succeed just as much as you do.
1: Welcome to Building Better Games, where we dive into what matters most in game development, leaders and culture. Your hosts are Aaron Smith and Benjamin Karsic. Aaron and Ben are two veteran game industry leaders who have served a global audience of gamers and want to change how games are made. Um, Welcome back everybody to Building Better Games and I'm excited about today's episode in particular, because we've never done this before. Um, We are on a quest right now to talk to a lot more game developers, a lot more game makers, but I've always been really interested in and passionate, and especially in the last five years in um, mod makers and the modding community in general, and also the impact that mods have on a lot of the games that we love. There's so many amazing stories of mod makers doing really amazing stuff and finding really good product market fit just purely out of passion. Um, so many titles just off the top of my head lately come to mind. I mean, League of Legends, PUBG, these are games that actually, that are, that originally that found their genesis in the modding community. And we have, uh, one of those folks here today. Um, I'm a huge Europa Universalis 4 nerd and a big Paradox game fan. And we have with us today, uh, uh, Will, big boss. Uh, the head of the uh, Flavor Universalis mod and community. And uh, it's had a big splash and and sort of reinvigorated the game for me. And I'm really excited to chat with him and talk more about that. So uh, welcome, Will, to Building Better Games, and thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Awesome. So there's so much we're going to talk about today. Um, In particular, I just love the story of Mod Maker becoming game developer. I think that that's just, there's something about the meritocratic aspect of that that's just so awesome. Um, Tell us a little bit about your background. How the hell did you end up involved in all this? Like, How did you find yourself as a mod maker one day?
0: I really liked the game. I I started playing EU3, I moved on to EU4 uh, way back when it came out. I checked it out, I said, it's not for me and I went back to e 3 for another year. (laughs) Uh, And then sometime in 2017, I was involved with Idea Variation, another mod, where I wrote the localization, and that was my first contact with modding. And ever since, I've uh, worked on a few teams, I've spearheaded some projects, and here I am. (laughs) You know, one of the
1: things I personally feel as a player is that there's sort of like a curtain when it comes to mod making. And I and I've only recently have I started to get a peek behind the curtain. What are those communities like that where people come together to make mods? What what do you what's going what goes on behind that curtain that you think players like the average player might not expect or that they might find surprising?
0: Well, the first aspect that a lot of people probably find surprising is the competitiveness. Of the mm. scene especially when it comes to mods that cover the same area of the mm. game like missions or total overhaul or um, time uh, uh time start um, events uh, ages uh there's a lot of competition and a lot of competition sometimes good sometimes bad um another thing that people don't know is well A lot of mods take a big bite with a small mouth. For example, they have four people and they start off and say, I want to make a total overhaul mod for Lord of the Rings, like bring the entirety of Lord of the Rings alive into E4, which is doable, Mm. but not when you have four people, (laughs) right? Mm. So these are a couple of things that people don't really know about. What's going on in the background? Yeah, that second
2: one, I think that reminds me of all software and game development. <laughs> Actually, everybody, <laughs> I like that phrase. Everybody's trying to take a big bite with a small mouth. <laughs> like yeah. I think, I think we should just completely add an entire product line or feature or set or whatever. Um, why don't we bring in two good engineers and we'll hope that they can get that done in a couple of months. <laughs>
1: So I want to quickly, before we move more into this conversation, because I think there's going to be so much fun stuff to cover here. I actually want to give you, Will, a little bit of uh, airtime to talk about your background, just personally, and kind of how you arrived at this stage of your life where you're at right now. And then the second thing we should do is we should actually probably give our audience a heads up a little bit more about what Europa Universalis 4 actually is, and and tell them a little bit more about Paradox Games, Um, because they're a they are a very specific corner of the game space that if you're not already into it, it could be a little bit mind boggling. So I think that'd be a good thing to talk a little bit about Paradox Games in general and what they are so that people can kind of uh, connect with what we're talking about here. So Will, I'm gonna kick it over to you first. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and your journey in life up to this point.
0: Well, I started uh, at 18, I I had an aptitude for languages. I wanted to study um, literature. Um, Unfortunately, I failed my exams uh, and I ended up becoming a translator, Mm. uh, where I graduated a few years ago. I started my master's degree um, on human rights and migration. Um, I have a lovely dog which I love very much. And I'm a real big strategy player. I like strategy games. It's part of my personality. <laughs> box, box strategy for me, because there's a lot of subgenres. Like, are you across everything? Grand um, strategy, everything, everything. I've been, I still have Age of Empires 2, Age of Kings CD. Yes, yes.
1: I used to have um, a CD case which was primarily just to hold all of the copies of that game that I had. We, we always used to constantly reinstall it. <laughs> so we had to have extra CDs and CD keys. You know, it's funny, I, one thing that struck me there is social sciences. Um, I, I've, mm. I feel like there's gotta be some kind of connection between people who are interested in the social sciences, and people who are attracted to Paradox Games. Yeah,
0: I, I didn't have a girlfriend, that's the connection. <laughs> <laughs> No, um, all jokes aside, I, I, I grew up uh, learning English via video games and, and media and I fell in love with languages. And I, mm-hmm. it's one of the things I, I knew that I wanted to do uh, growing up, you know, like work with languages. Well, I had one dream that was a little more wacky than that to become a game developer, but I never really like took that up as a serious, uh, you know, Scenario, or well, until now, anyway. That's awesome. Um,
1: so yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, Paradox Games and Europa Universalis IV. So I'll kick it off, and then, and I think actually everyone here will have a very unique perspective on this, which I think kind of come together to to uh, hopefully paint the picture here. Um, Europa Universalis and Paradox Games in general, I would I would put under the umbrella of grand strategy. Um, Paradox started as a small studio a ways back. I think probably at this point, like like late '90s, I would guess, right with the original um, Europa and Vicky games and stuff like that. Um, I might be m- uh, messing up some of the details here, but basically, it it, it sort of uh, Paradox sort of st- be- became a staple in this niche area of video games, which was like, I, a lot of people might call this four X. I feel like four X is a little bit non-descriptive, but, um, I call it grand strategy, like games where there's massive amounts of content. Um, like where, you know, if you were a cynic, you could call them spreadsheet games, um, where there's just, there's so much information. I mean, I, you know, I'll teach somebody when I'm like bringing in a new player or a friend that wants to get into the game, I'll go through each main menu section of Europe of Universalis <laughs> 4, and it will take like 30 minutes per menu section just, just to get through the basic buttons um, of like how to interface with the game. That's like the level of depth and complexity. And interestingly enough, I, I too started Will with games like Age of Empires 2 and StarCraft. And, and weirdly, like I kind of desired as a player more and more depth. And, and I sort of arrived at Paradox Games years later as like, it's like the ultimate kind of, like the promised land of like, okay, this is to feel really like you're the ruler of an empire, to really feel like you're the, the controller of the country's economy and politics and war and diplomacy and all this stuff. So... It's, uh, they're incredibly complicated games. It's like, uh, there's a part of me that goes like paradox needs better tutorials. And then there's another part of me that's like, that is not a good use of their <laughs> development resources, you know, like it to make a tutorial for a game like that. It's just like, don't bother, you know, like you have to smash your head against the wall for the first two months. That's just part How of the process. How do you even make it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like- so anyway, um, you know, if you're interested, you can look into this more aside from this podcast, but it is a very interesting sort of hardcore gamer niche that has actually grown quite a bit. Um, and there are now titles like Stellaris, which, you know, have kind of touched into the mainstream a little bit more, which is really interesting over the last couple of years. So anyway, um, what how what, what am I missing when you guys think about Paradox Games? And Euro or maybe Europa Universalis specifically, which is kind of a flagship title for them. What What do you think is sort of interesting or um, different about them from what you see in the mainstream?
2: Um, will you want? I, I you, I'll take this one because I probably have a lot less to say, and you probably have more. Um, uh, interestingly, my exposure to Paradox is twofold. They They did Magica. Was that Was that somebody else? Yeah. Am I wrong? Yeah, they did Magica. They, well, and- they
1: published Magica, I think.
2: And then they did Magicka Wizard Wars, um, yeah. which was a game now defunct, uh, which was like a little 3v3 MOBA weird like spell combo. If you have ever played Magicka, you know you take your different elements, you combine them into spells and things. Um, and one of my earliest interactions was my brother got really good at that game and started like posting on the forums and engaging with the community heavily. And they ended up, um, I think he went did he go to Europe or did he just start casting for them? Like he ended up being a shoutcaster basically for the game because he understood it so well. Uh, and I thought that was really awesome how they engaged with the community. The community never got that big, the game never really took off um, and I don't even think they support it anymore. But um, so that was one of my early encounters with Paradox. And the, game, the Paradox game I've played the most is actually Crusader Kings, which uh, is simple enough to have sort of a tutorial, maybe kind of, Um, and (laughs) what was actually fascinating to me about it was where most of their games, because I've played Stellaris, I've played EU4, um, maybe a couple of the others, but uh, Crusader Kings managed to have a broad appeal through something we're going to talk about a bit, story elements, Um, your lineage, and sort of how your civilization grew. And when I say a broader appeal, uh, like my brother, or my brother's wife, who certainly enjoys gaming but doesn't is not a grand strategy player by default, actually really enjoyed it and got into the game. And some other people I knew who didn't really even play games got into Crusader Kings. And so for me, Crusader Kings 3 was like this very strange, oh, even though it actually has some decent amount of depth, I mean, it's a you know a penny's worth of depth compared to, you know, the, the massive bank of EU4. Mm. Um, but it, 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 many of the systems at the surface level look similar, it had incredible appeal. Um, and so I was actually taught by Aaron how to play EU4. Um, I remember he did go through menu by menu. And there were a lot of menus. And some of the <laughs> menus, I think he'd been playing for, I think you were maybe not even past 1000 hours when you introduced me yeah. to it. But you, there were menus you were in like, I think, eight, 900 hour range. With having played the game and you which by the, you know.
1: by the way, w- like, just think about that quote that you just said, not even a thousand hours. Yeah. Like that's like, like that's just starting to scratch the well, surface. This should could give you an 90- language. In yeah, that
2: yeah, I, I, I mean, eight, so eight or 900 hours in, and there were some menus where what you told me was, don't worry about this. I don't really know what's going on here. Like, yeah. uh, you know, and yeah. I was like, oh, okay. I so it anyway. <laughs> um, so we played it a bit. Okay. So that's that's my my relationship to EU for um, to get grand strategy. Uh, not, not it didn't quite land for me. Um, but I've, I've enjoyed quite a bit of paradox. And so that's my my relationship to it. Okay, we'll toss it to you.
0: Well, paradox is all about going from, or at least their current push, as, as I understand it, is going from something niche, to something more mainstream. Mm-hmm. That much is evident with the way they approach Victoria 3, yeah. CK3. The newer titles are more uh, accessible, mm-hmm. I guess I could say, to, to newer players. Not as scary, you know. Um, and I'm a very big fan of that. Uh, mm-hmm. I started playing EU3. That's where I met Paradox back in 2011. Oh my God, it's been 11 years. Oh my God. <laughs> What are you doing with your we're life? we old. will get into that. Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> um, and I remember I was like punching in the console commands, you know, the cheats, because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Uh, I was playing as the Ming. And then when AU4 came out and it was revolutionary in the sense that it introduced so many new concepts, mm-hmm. uh, better engine, more developers, they expanded. Paradox is all about the expansion as a Mm -hmm. company that they have had to go from a small, nearly indie developer company with like three people to having sub-branches all across the world Mm -hmm. and get to a point where their games uh, are now slowly inching towards uh, fame and and popularity alongside other strategy games. Because for me, I didn't just straight into dive on EU4. I, I went through Edge of Empires, Age of Mythology um Total War series was like the big thing for me mm-hmm. like Rome Total War uh, Attila everything everything literally every single Rome game um and then it was sort of like a like a staircase i had to climb and in the top it was EU4 and i guess what people like about EU4 is that it's not a baby game it doesn't fuck around, per se. Yeah. It gives you the challenge you don't know you want. Yeah. Because when you get to a point where you say, I get trade now, I understand trade, you feel accomplished. It's like beating a very tough Dark Souls boss. Mm-hmm. You know? the, dark Souls take this, <laughs> the Dark Souls of grand strategy. The Dark Souls <laughs> of grand strategy, exactly. It's, it's definitely a, a learning cliff Mm-hmm. Not a curve. It's <laughs> not a curve. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, I love that. That's that's so on point. And, you know, one of the things that I've always found true about Paradox Games as well is that um, replayability is a word that has come up time and time mm-hmm. again for me as a gamer. And mm-hmm. um, it's frankly not something that I take for granted anymore. I think I didn't, understand the concept when I was still early on in my gaming journey. But now at this stage, I almost aside from the quality of the game as a standalone product, if it's got what I call massive replayability, like I can keep coming back to it over and over, over the course of years, there's something very special about that, something very Mm -hmm. magical about that, something like, and, and EU4 is a game where it's like, I can put it down for four months and then come back and i'm still going to have a good time um mm. and i mean the game came out what at this point 2013 something like that and it's we're in 2021 and i and i've probably i've i've definitely got 4 to 5000 hours in that game and there's just so because of all the variables because of all of the depth there's so many permutations so many ways a game can turn out differently than any other game you've played before that it really just r- creates rich replayability and that's that's pretty rare actually um like i i will occasionally go back and play like a um like I'm, I'm playing The Witcher Three right now, and that's a game I'm like maybe five or six years from now I'll come back and I'll play it again. It seems like that kind of game, but like it's not, it's not gonna have that, and that's probably on the more replayable side. Yeah, compared to a lot of games. So it's, it's really interesting that what that depth creates and the kind of like longevity. Like I think Paradox even came out and said that like the average player has, uh. uh hundreds or or even maybe over a thousand hours in the game like it's not that's not uncommon um i can't remember the specific number but they said they they mentioned it a couple years back so
2: well so i have a question for you both as players of the game and i'm you kind of talked about it as an individual level but if you if you meta out for a second um we're in this genre of grand strategy why what does draw players to EU for? You know, because you, you can say like, well, it's got great replayability, but that doesn't explain why do people get into it? Like, what are they looking for? Can I take it?
1: Yeah, yeah. no, please. I, I'm right. way more interested in your opinion on this. <laughs> um,
0: well, I guess uh, there are two different answers I can give in this. The first one is a more superficial answer to say that, hey, you know, it's a game about you know, growing something, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a historical game. It's about some people look at it from a nationalistic point of view and they say, Oh, like I'm English, so I'm going to play England and they see England thrive, you know, and, and they are, and they feel good about that people who have a love for history, people who, um, really like knowing about history or reading up on it, you know, because the game can be a sort of a gateway for people to study history like me. Um, and I can give you the second answer, which is more psychological, which is all about the power fantasy, you know, of how would you handle an empire, mm-hmm. you know, and, and EU4 is, to my knowledge, the only game ever to be made to give you this much control and fun, because this is a game after all, mm-hmm. and it, it needs to be fun. Then any other game that's ever come close to it. So you have the level of control and autonomy to decide. That's what makes the game awesome. Like, do you want to tax your people? Do you want to develop your provinces? Do you want to go to war? Do you want to be diplomatic? Do you want to follow your mission tree? Do you want to uh, play the Ottomans and fuck off to the new world and, and colonize? You can do that. You can do anything you want in the game. You are the person that decides. Hmm. Yeah,
1: that's that's really powerful and, um, and maybe this will lead us into a little bit more of how you approached all of this um, as a developer. Yeah, because I I think there's something that comes up for me that you keyed into with flavor, which is this idea of there's a fantasy here. Um, and I think you mentioned the control part of it. There's another part of it too, which is like. So for those of you that don't know this, this is sort of an anecdote. But like, there's uh, there's a word called Byzantophile that's like often talked about in the EU4 community and the and the idea. It's kind of a joke, half joke idea that everyone loves playing Byzantium, and uh, right, uh, Byzantium, which is the Eastern Roman Empire, basically ceased to exist about. A couple years after the start date of eu4 like out of an eu4 campaign so there's this fantasy here of like can you keep them alive can you change history can it's like the ultimate example of just no i changed everything i changed the like there's the we actually have our historical story right it's all documented but i changed it and i think You've what I think a lot of what you've done with the mod is you've like opened up so many more of these possibilities and these fantasies for people. Um, like so many more paths are available to you now, uh, and I'm wondering like what you think of that because I I think of that fantasy for me, like of being able to change history, is is a big part of the the draw for me.
0: Right. So I think you tackled it amazingly, and you gave me a great segue into what I wanted to say. Uh, a a big part of the appeal of these games, as we already discussed, is what if, what if Byzantium had survived? What if uh, Spain had fallen to Andalusia? What if uh, Prussia never formed? What if Russia died? What if uh, Japan united and conquered China? Um, In the case of Byzantium, and as much as it purports to my mod, my project, um, I went ahead and I corresponded with uh, a multitude of uh, professors of history, both in Anatolian, Middle Eastern and Byzantine studies, to sort of discuss with them how would it look like if Byzantium had interacted with uh, institutions like colonialism? How would they handle the spice trade? Because the Ottomans, you know, they barred the Portugal and the Europeans from the spice trade. And that was one of the reasons why the Europeans turned West. Or, well, this way. Um, And it's one of the projects that I really enjoyed making because I could apply all this knowledge and research that I had accumulated into exploring a very elaborate and well-crafted what if scenario? What if Byzantium had lived? And it's it goes so far beyond just restoring what was there, you know, going mm-hmm. back to the old institutions, going back to the old administration. No, it it expands on that. Yes, you will restore Justinian's empire. Yes, you will retake Egypt and and Aleppo and uh, uh, Damascus and Jerusalem. But you'll go far, far more. Uh, Further than that, you'll you'll reform your administration, you'll modernize it, you will adopt gunpowder, you will have relations with Russia and Ethiopia uh, being Christian brethren to you. Or you cannot have any of these and you can Mm -hmm. just conquer them. Again, it's all about freedom. The way I design my trees and my projects, it's all about freedom. It's about giving you the tools to pursue your own story. It could be any type of story. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not up to me to tell you, go go there and conquer there. No, I say you can go there and you can go there diplomatically, or you can go there as a conqueror, or you can go there via your subjects if you want to. What I love about that
1: story piece right there is you already just told me, I, I, I was I've, and I'm so curious, you just told us like two or three things that I didn't know uh that were involved in the work and the research and in the building of this thing i'm really curious like tell us more about the people that are involved in this the challenges that you have to overcome in just building one of these new mission trees or revamping one of these nations or like i I had no idea that you were working with history professors it makes so much sense now but i'm like how did you even find these people how did that work it's fascinating to me what for those for most of us who have no idea what's involved in something like this what is involved in something like this like what are some of the things that would
0: surprise us um so basically flavor universalis is uh, it's a mod for AU4. Um, but what separates it from other mods uh, is that it essentially doesn't it doesn't disregard, but it doesn't really much care about balance. Because a lot, of, a big part of the community is really big on balance. Yeah. And I'm part of the community. Yeah. And I used to be like that. Yeah. But I decided for the purposes of this project to give the players flavor, missions, events, mechanics to play with to essentially um, not disregard balance, but rather focus more on the fun aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, so FU, as is the, the abbreviation, and a lot of people told me, maybe that's not a good choice, but uh, <laughs> to which I say FU. Um, uh, Flavor Universalis uh, contains nearly 40 mission trees, more than 600 events, uh, and uh, dozens upon dozens of new mechanics, interactions, uh, gameplay aspects, never before seen that are not even present in the base game. Um, and it is uh, as far as the creative, as far as the creative aspect of it. Um, in the in Byzantium's case, in the case of Byzantium, the Byzantine Empire, Eastern Rome. I had the uh, luck of collaborating with a couple of my uh, uh, high school professors and university professors uh, whom I met, and I emailed explaining, so there's this project I'm working on, and I would like to ask you this crazy, wacky question. I'm not going to go into detail what this project is about, because I don't want to weird you out or confuse you, <laughs> explaining to a 70-year-old person what EU4 is <laughs> over email, no less. Um, so they were very kind to give me some pointers and some uh, bibliography I could study. Because as I said, the process behind creating a mission tree for my mod, because I don't know how the people approach it, but that's my way, is I will be this high up into books and study about Bohemian crystals and, and the Wagenberg that the Bohemians used, or the Crusades against the Hussites, or the Teutonic Order, or, or Sweden, or, or the Netherlands, or anything. And once I have the research I want, then I will go into cataloging and putting everything into a sort of a time, timeline. You know, Because obviously, things that happened in the 15th century should happen first in the tree. Yeah. So it wouldn't really make sense to add later events into an earlier time frame in the game. So once I have my research, then I will catalog it. I will distinguish between wheat and chaff and say, okay, I like this. I want this to be an event. I want this to be a mission. You know, make weird, crazy notes in in my books about it. Um, And then I go into the magical... Uh, design phase of the tree, which is the most boring of it, uh, where I basically have a diagram in front of me and I literally draw, uh, the layout of the tree sort of to get to visualize it. Mm-hmm. Um, I use draw.io for that purpose. It's a free website. Anyone can use it. Um, and I basically write the title of the mission, the requirements, the rewards, any events associated with it. And then I basically have a layout of the tree. In the Ottoman mission trees case, which has 101 missions, very useful to finish the design and then move on to coding. Mm -hmm. Because you don't want to go into coding before you're done with the design. Because something might change and then the code is going to be a little more difficult to -hmm. change. So after I'm done with the diagram, I go into coding, and that's my favorite part. I like coding. Call me weird. I like coding. I like seeing uh, weird numbers and letters and symbols turn into gameplay. I think that's, to me, it's fascinating. So then I go into coding, and depending on the mission tree, it can take anywhere from three hours, if it's like 15 missions, uh, relatively simple, to a week and a half, if it's the Ottoman tree, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, once that's done, I play test it and I play test it again. And then I miss a couple of things and then I release the final product. Uh, once I'm done writing localization and everything, um, and then I go back to bug fixing the same day because I've missed a couple of things. Mm -hmm. Um, all in all, I have about three other people in my team. And they do mostly either localization or a little bit of playtesting. Mm-hmm. Every other aspect of the mod, from design to research to uh, even playtesting and coding, is 99% handled by me personally. What are the biggest challenges in that process? Oof. Time. I can't clone myself. Yeah. Uh, there are things I want to work on. Yeah. Like a tree for Ming would be a good uh, exercise for me. How to make a boring nation interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, time is a big constraint. Uh, coding constraints also exist for common mortal martyrs like myself. Well, soon to be non mortal, but. Uh, um, <laughs> like, there are things that I can't do, at least right now, Yeah. right? Um, like, for example, I had this idea to turn the Wagenberg uh, military uh, battle machine, machine that was used by the Bohemians into a special uh, infantry unit, you know, like the Kawa or the Janissaries or the Streltsy. Uh, but I couldn't do that, unfortunately.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: that is not on the menu for... Uh, mere mere mortals like us. The mod, um, yeah, yeah.
2: And you're you are um, just just so everybody in the audience is clear. Um, Will is alluding to uh, changes in his career and jobs that are that are upcoming um, <laughs> to make him immortal in the sense of uh, probably having yeah. a lot greater access to what he's trying to do. Yeah,
1: yeah. So you you this all led to you going to work for Paradox just just it recently. That's a, you know, that, that, again, that transition is always just a fascinating transition to me. It's always an exciting transition. Um, And I, I want to ask a nuclear question to you right now, which we talked about a little bit before we started recording, which is like, from a very selfish point of view, I'm like, I'm, I am excited that you're going to get paid for the very hard work that you do (laughs) I think that that's fantastic. And that's the most important thing, I think, in many respects. As a player of your mod, I am a little nervous. I'm curious, how does that all fit together for you? How do you see the world, your world changing and your role as a modder? And, and, as a, and I think you're a hero to the community. For those people that play your mod, I think you're a bit of a hero to, to that community. So it's like, how does your relationship with the players change? now as you go to work with paradox
0: what do you think i mean that's a really good question that is one question that i myself asked not only me because i'm worried as much as the next guy you Mm -hmm. know or at least i was um i had my second interview for the job with um johan himself one of the questions i asked was how much freedom will i have as a designer to uh, design and implement my ideas i don't want someone um who is less experienced than me but is a senior to me to essentially impose his will on my work because then it kind of stops being my work yeah um and he said no uh, 95 percent of what you do is going to be up to you so um i'll 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 take that with a little bit of a grain of salt but i Mm -hmm. think it's a very good answer yeah, um, I'm really excited to be translating. So basically, what you will see is flavor universales, but without having to install a mod, mm-hmm. you know. So, so that's kind of what I want. Yeah. For example, recently I've been working on the French update. Ish. Um, I was thinking if Paradox is game to transfer my work that is uh, still underway from the mod to the base game with some tweaks Mm -hmm. because it's a really nice design it's a very nice tree it touches a lot on what you said earlier about replayability in the form that it has a branching missions based on your decisions so i think it would be an amazing addition for a country that is severely lacking a really nice mission tree Mm -hmm. and a country that a lot of people play yeah Mm -hmm. Um, who's Who's Johan? Sorry. So, Johan uh, is the the head guy in Tinto. Okay. He started working for Paradox over two decades now, and he is sort of the head of EU4. Nice, okay.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, one, one thing that's so interesting is, um, that I'm thinking about too, and I'm sure you've thought about this a lot, <clears throat> You know, there's there's the Europa Universalis for player community, and then you can break that down to another layer, right? Um, and that's one of the beauties of the workshop on Steam or modding communities is that you can sort of build your own adventure. Like, maybe you're a player of EU4, but you're you you're gravitating towards Big Boss's mod, Flavor Universalis, because you're not as concerned about balance as you are about depth and replayability, which I think is actually where I sit. Um, but I, I know that there are a lot of very vocal players in the community who are just like <laughs> there's there's <laughs> there's two kind of guys that I think of, like that, that guy's. Um, One of them is, is like, well, that's unbalanced and that's, you know, and, and weirdly when you get into the balance discussion with the U4, it's very subjective. There's the balance guy who's, who's got his opinion on what good balance is and, and is very stuck in that opinion. And then there's the other, that guy, which is the, that never would have happened or that's historically inaccurate guy. Mm. Like the, the, (laughs) which is. Which you and I, Ben, were talking about yesterday, and you were like, "Well, that's the whole reason you play Europe Universalis is to change. If uh, otherwise, you just you would just want a historical simulator where you didn't touch the keyboard and you would just hit play and watch it. It's you're it's just called to reading, maintain history. Yeah, you know, it's called like, reading a history like, book. Actually, you can do it without uh, well, paying twenty bucks for a game.
0: <laughs> the thing is, uh, and this is a fact." that some people need to understand, especially those who are like, those who have like a super hard on about keeping things historical, yeah. is that the game ceases to be historical the moment you unpause. Yeah, mm-hmm. yes. The moment you unpause, things are gonna happen outside of your scope, in your scope, in your region, in your continent, in another continent that will not follow historical path. And that is part of what makes the game awesome. And I think again, you as the
1: the, a, ver- a thought leader in this space uh, from a game design perspective, you've taken a stand and you've, moved, like, through flavor, you've moved the game in a certain direction. I'm curious, now that you're official, does that change any of the way you approach this? Or, because I, you're, in, a, in effect now, you're, I mean, the mod is huge, right? I see streamers playing it all the time. It's got, you just hit 30,000 subscribers. Like, it's big, but now it's like, now you're serving literally the entire player basin for Europa Universalis four. How do you think that that changes your thought process or your approach, if at all?
0: So to answer that, I will explain a little bit my thought process behind every single big and even some small decisions, right, that involve the mod so far. Uh, I have a lot of really good friends in my community server on Discord. Uh, Every time I think of an idea, I run it by them. I hit up a friend and I ask, Hey, what do you think about that? Do you think this is something you would like to explore in the game? Because I may be a good player and I may have had uh, a lot of mileage in the community, but I'm not infallible. You know, I make mistakes. I, I sometimes am not on the same wavelength as other people. Uh, so I want to double check triple check. Is this something that people like you know because ultimately, I am making this for me, but I'm also making it for you and I want you to have fun. We talked about the
2: idea of as game developers making the game for yourself and how if you are the target audience that can work really well and also though that it, it comes with risk um, and I think when you're making the mod, you know one of the things is very much like, Hey, I'm making this for me. Not that I don't want others to enjoy it, but it is very much from my taste, my sensibilities. And I keep my counsel to some extent of like what I would put in and what I wouldn't put in. And as, as a game dev kind of working at paradox now, it's like, well, now I'm, I'm not making it for me except insofar as I am a stand in for what I consider the player or the target audience or Mm -hmm. the, like the group of people that we're hoping enjoy and engage with and continue to find replayability out of this experience. Like, anyway, that's what just went through my head. I'm curious as I say that, what comes up for you? Mm. Well,
0: um, I know there's a lot of mods that are very small in popularity, uh, where basically the creator only uploaded them because a couple of his friends asked him to. Mm. And I understand that the thought process of saying, you know, this is for me, not for you, but you can have it if you want to, you know, um, is, is a lot more akin to smaller mods. Um, I utilize the community, not as a burden Mm -hmm. in the sense that they will guide my creative choices, but rather as a guideline of sorts. Mm -hmm. There are times where I, 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 there are times where I make mistakes, of course, and I make wrong decisions and then I correct them. And there are also times when the community makes wrong decisions and I correct them. It's sort of, um, I'm utilizing the community as a tool. I I ask them, I say, hey, do you want to see this? Do you want to see that? Sometimes they say yes. Sometimes they say no. We have polls all the time where I ask them what they think about X, Y, Z. Sometimes I implement what they suggest. Sometimes I don't. And I base this on my gut. Uh, at this point. Yeah, it's a judgment call. There's That's fascinating. Aaron
2: and I were talking in the last few days about the idea of um, the relationship between a developer and the community. And just intuitively, it makes sense that the modders are much more connected to the community, usually coming from it and just sort of recognizing you know, you're know, you not off in the, in the tower of development trying to make this something great and it is... I mean we've worked in game dev it is hard to maintain connection to players as much as you want to as much as everybody may want to um to some extent there is there is a an us versus them you know we're yeah. the people that mess with your game uh, and it, you know we changed we changed the world in ways you don't understand we're a modders uh, right there with them you know it's um, funny
1: Ben that you mentioned that because there's a purity there there's a there's a beauty and a purity there that I romanticize about I think a little bit and I think will it's why I look at guys like you and I just I'm I find it so impressive and and I think when I'm when I'm coming from that place I'm coming from that place as a player not as a game developer um, and it makes me really happy uh, and I think it's why I'm such a big supporter of the mod community and why I'm so excited when mod makers become game developers, because I think they intuitively understand that relationship better and easier than some folks who have actually been making games professionally for decades. Um, And I guess I want to ask you about what your thoughts are on that, because I think we do live in a world now where sometimes the relationship between game developer and player is Really uh adversarial. Fraught with peril. Uh, yeah. I mean, I we were just talking about CD Project Red. Uh, you can
0: say Leviathan.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it, well, exactly. And and then it's like and, and actually Leviathan's interesting, right? Um, and and again, yeah, the other example I was thinking of was CD Project Red with uh Cyberpunk 2077. And like players get angry. And then I know what it's like to be a game developer and reading those like there, I mean, and these are really like, this isn't like, I'm angry. Why did you do, this is like, I hate you. I hate your family. You're the worst. Here's your IP. Yeah, it's it's like, you read some of this stuff and it's like, and you're there and you're working your ass off. And it's like the easiest place to go is just be like, screw you, you don't get it we're working our asses off. You don't understand. You're just a player. And then it just spirals and spirals and spirals. And it's like, and then you've got this PR aspect to the public relations aspect, where you probably have like some group of people inside of your company who are like in charge of the talking to outsiders piece. And they're like more marketing and not really like real connected. Yeah. And so there's so much going on there. And 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 I love I think it's very beautiful that mod makers are in it and they they have real relationships. And I, I sometimes think we forget about that. And I'm curious, what are your thoughts on that? And again, you're now making that transition, right? Um, between Game uh, between modder and game developer from a community relations point of view, what comes up for you as we talk about
0: that? Oof, that's a big question. Um, so first and foremost, I am indeed transitioning to greatness. Um, <laughs> uh, and one thing I value very much, it's uh, something that I didn't intend to happen, but it did happen. Uh, Flavio Universalis at this point is a little over a year old. Um, but since then people have joined my community that I consider to be really good and close friends, Mm -hmm. some of whom I've met in real life as well after Mm -hmm. they joined, um, people that I like interacting with people that I go to for help people that have been there with me. You know, in the low points, the high points, and people that I have immense respect for. Now, I do worry about losing that connection, but I am also hopeful that I will not lose that connection. One way of sort of maintaining this connection as as a modder, for example, of a popular mod, is sometimes when I code something, you know, or I or I design a diagram or a, a flow for a mission tree I will jump on a voice channel and I will just share my screen I will say hey I'm streaming coding if you guys want to watch and maybe catch a few uh, early looks at what I'm working at now, you can join and people join people join uh, five six people but they join and we have a good time talking about it you know mm-hmm. now I understand the the, the scale will be a little bit different, uh, from catering to a few thousand players to catering to maybe a million players. I worry about that, but I'm hopeful. I'm not going to change who I am or how I approach things. Mm-hmm. I am fully aware that I will not be able to satisfy a hundred percent of the community. Mm-hmm. I would settle for a good 80, 85%. There's always going to be voc- vocal people. I mean, I used to be one, you know, mm-hmm. you go through that phase. Maybe not to a weird extent, but I've been there, so I understand it. Um, The important thing is to not lose sight of that there are people behind the games. There are human beings that sleep and eat and talk and have friends, and they want to the game to succeed just as much as you do.
2: Yeah, there's a way to approach game development that attempts to engage the players really well, but does it in sort of a mass polling way. And that has some utility, like there's some value in that. There's another way that is, um, I don't know, it's the influencers, the wrong word, but like, where you where you try to ask people who are deeply engaged with your game, like how you're playing. And what's interesting is when you've described, you know, hey, if I just bring five or six people into a channel with me while I'm doing something, they get a preview, and I get to hear their thoughts. And there's like the few people that I know, and I'm going to ask them questions. And while having a small group like that has the potential of like, you know, oh, maybe we're kind of all the same type of player. And so we're sort of group thinking our way into a bad place. Um, there's also this idea of, man, if you're careful in the selection of a small group of people, um, the quality of the feedback you can get um, gives you as much utility and value out of a deep conversation with like five people as a poll that goes to 30,000 might give you. Um, And it's just something that that struck me. And it's like you got to like kind of strike the balance between those two things as you're thinking about changing or designing or interacting with a game from the lens of, wait, is this actually something that the player is going to enjoy? Is this actually something that's going to in the case of EU4, make this something that people want to keep playing, want to keep engaging with. Um, And for you in the mod making community, you kind of have access to both. And then you'll be a paradox and you'll have in some ways much greater access and in some ways sort of different or almost modified access to that same thing.
0: Mm, Well, one of the ways I would tackle that if I am allowed to do so, of course, um is to essentially say this is my community this is where i will be spending my downtime in and maybe some of my coding time this is where you can reach me if you are someone who wants to have a say in the game Mm. and and talk to me about it like my door is always open you can text me you can call me um i will be streaming there i do coding lessons now i i have a Events in my community where I say I will teach you how to code mission trees and Or I will teach you how to code uh, and make uh, great projects and monuments. Uh, we had a very successful uh, coding lesson a few days ago, where like 20 people joined um, Where we basically made an Among Us mission tree and um, and it was a bit of a joke moment, but uh, it was very, very um, educational for people who wanted to learn how to code and mm-hmm. people who just wanted to see how the sausage is made mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, or whatever the vegan equivalent is. <clears throat> there's, uh, and there's a,
1: there's a consistent theme here, Will, that I think you're touching on because you, everything, all the stuff you're talking about feels like could be categorized as building relationships. And you're, you're talking about, like, what would it be like to have more transparency? What would it be like to have open office hours? What would it be like to have my contact information available mm-hmm. for people in the community? What would it, what would it be like if I made a, a, kept a certain amount of my time, like my personal pie chart, so that people could connect with me in a meaningful way? That's it. Because when I think about as a player, the thing that makes me feel bad when I'm a player, like, and I'm interfacing with a developer or as a developer, like when we were at Riot, for example, is this feeling like, hey, these things are really important to me and you don't seem to get that. You seem to have other priorities. You seem to be focused on other things. Um, and and there's a it's trust is the word that comes up it's trust it's not even like hey you need to be working on all the things I think you should be working on it's like I trust you to understand what my needs are and I trust you to I trust you that you get it and and what's funny is all those tools you just mentioned will are actually the tools that build trust they, that create connection that create a real relationship between a developer and a player. And uh, I think that's the difference. It's like, are we building meaningful relationships? Um, because it's not you're you're not always going to be working on the things they want you to work on. But if if you have a connection to them and you can talk to them, they're going to understand why you're making the choices that you're making. And that's really human, and that's really powerful.
0: There have been times where I, I people would come to me with ideas, and I have two ways of handling it. If it's someone that I know really well, um, they come to me in a voice channel and they say, hey, like, would you add this you know, mission or event? I will say no because either I don't have the time to do it, which is like 90% the reason why I don't do all those ideas. Or I'll say no because it doesn't fit the theme or I've used it somewhere else or for whatever reason. And then the other way of handling it is when someone that i don't know comes to my server and says hey would you like to do a mission tree for this uh, opm uh, one province miner uh, native that nobody has ever heard of about <laughs> and and they essentially ask the one guy that works on this mod to drop everything and then work on their niche idea i never say no instead i'll say uh We'll see, you know, I would like to do that at some point when I get, it's the equivalent of ask your mother, Uh, (laughs) you know, because I I don't want to say no. I I know that these people have passion and I I have tremendous respect for their passion. So I just say, I don't have the time to do it right now. We'll see. You know, I would like to explore Mm -hmm. that uh, direction at some point. So that's kind of how I handle that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's almost like you're saying, instead of saying, no, that's not important, or yes, that is important, we're gonna do it right now, you're saying, that's a really cool idea and I I value it. Of course I do, yeah.
0: because someone took the time to express the idea, someone yeah. took the time to join my community and talk to me. Yeah. The least I can do is listen. Yeah. I wanna I wanna touch
2: on something, because I realized we didn't actually do a comparison. When you said you created Flavor Universalis, you described like there were some hundreds of events. I think you said something like six hundred plus events. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. forty something like forty mission trees, around forty mm-hmm. mission trees. Uh and then if I recall from the page that Aaron sent me to, <laughs> um, it was like 36 monuments or something something in that space. Um, how many are in the base game? Like when when we're looking at this, is it like oh, I've, you know, I've increased it by 10% or is it like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there there were, well, there were five of these before and so I've, you know, made it 10x, but mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know, what, what's, the, what's the scope
0: of this mod as it relates to EU4? Well, that's a very good question. Actually, I can give you a rough estimate right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the base game has around 100-ish, maybe a little less than that. Um, but Event, events or mission trees, missions, mission missions. Trees. Okay. So about a hundred different, maybe actually probably fewer. Yeah. Uh, anything between sixty and eighty or so. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. However, the best metric to capture what Flavio Universalis really brings to the, in on the table, because I'm one guy, I'm never going to be able to pump out right. as much content quantity wise. As other bigger mods, um, in terms of content, or even as the base game, um, what you should look at is the size of each mission tree. And I'm not talking about how many missions or you know how long yeah. or anything, but rather the lines of code mm-hmm. involved in a mission tree. Mm-hmm. To give you an example, the uh, the biggest base game mission tree has 2.4 thousand lines of code. Mm -hmm. It's the, uh, mission tree for Austria. Mm -hmm. My biggest mission tree as of, uh, this podcast, um, has 5.2 thousand lines. Uh, it's nearly, well, more than twice the size than, than the biggest. And currently working on France, I'm not even halfway done and I'm already cracking 3,000. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be even bigger, right? It's all about cramping in as much replayability and, and yeah. content for
2: people who have played this nation and, before. And when when you think about lines of code there, obviously that's not, you know, like, well, some people are more efficient. In, you're What well, you're actually talking about, this this is a rough estimate of the depth and complexity yeah. of what you're capturing in a mission. And,
1: and I mean, I'll say as a player, um, I think... <clears throat> Uh, the first thing that popped up into my mind was the the Ottoman mission tree that you built um one thing I can say is that you play with all the aspects of the game through the mission tree like um you know without going into too much detail because a lot of people that are listening to this may not understand eu four in depth but there's um there's an estates mechanic um for sort of different factions and the influence and 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 uh powers that they have within your country. So, um, you know, like the nobility or the merchants or whatever. And um, you touch that a lot and in very historically accurate and also meaningful ways, like they have clear positive benefits and negative thing risks that you have to manage. And you touch on that a lot through the mission tree. And that's not even something that I, I've seen Paradox do a lot. They don't play with all the different aspects of the game through the mission tree the way that you do. So you, it, there's a level of depth there that is way more than what you see in the base game. Um, and and I think um, it really pulls you... In. I mean, it's always fun when Paradox adds a new mission tree for a country in EU4. It's always It's always like... That's adds more to the game, generally speaking. But the level of depth is like, um, I mean, honestly, five to ten x for a flavor tree than in general, I would say. Um, Like, it's 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 like not really comparable. It's it's um, it's a game changer, literally.
2: So that that leads me to a question of, of, um, and maybe you got to ask them this, like paradox, why. Why didn't they do that? That's that's an aggressive way. Like, there's a lot of things going on, and I've been in video game development, so there's a million priorities. Everything is hard to choose. You only have so many developers, so many resources to put on things. It seems like you've added a mod that's really provided a lot more length uh, to the engagement that that the experience of EU4 provides, right? Like, this has just made the game... Uh, come alive again for players, and that's saying something for a game that when you've played this a lot, you know you're not talking like yeah, I put my three hundred hours in. You're talking I put my three thousand hours in. Like to extend the life of a product like that is 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 meaningful. Um, and <laughs> and so what what prevented them from doing that, or what caused them to not prioritize it? Did you were you able to talk to them about any of those things, especially now as you're going there to perhaps fill this? Um, I don't know if niche is the right word, but fill
0: this space, fill this opportunity. So that's a really good question. And is one I have myself, Uh, but in order to, so one of my weaknesses as a person is when I discuss feedback towards projects that I'm not involved in, and I'm always extremely careful as a result. And I've learned to be extremely careful when it comes to criticizing the work of other people, I try to be fair, uh, most of all, constructive. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love to ask them and say, hey, like, you know, how can I give the Ottomans this mission tree and you can't do, you know, something similar, given that you have the keys to the engine, you know, Mm -hmm. and a lot more heads than me, that's for sure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not like they are Inexperienced or bad at their job, I'm sure there's a reason. You know, creative uh, constraints, timetables, uh, priorities. Yeah. I don't know, unfortunately. So I can't uh, jump on a conclusion and say, oh, they're horrible. They're really bad at their job. No, they're really good at their job. Yeah. The last DLC they made was actually a big step up compared to the previous work they made. Mm-hmm. So. I'll definitely ask her though.
1: <laughs> I mean, okay. you you've articulated pretty clearly that this is time-consuming work, like it, that. It is not uh, actually just hearing you talk about it. I walk away with a a newer and deeper understanding of how much effort
2: goes into a mission tree. You know what? When, you know what else pops up for me when you say that, Aaron. It's not just that it's time-consuming. It's something. I just I don't know. It's multidisciplinary. Yeah. And that's a that's a challenge, actually. Yeah. When I think about that in relation to again, having been in, in game dev and you know, led teams and things like that. Um we know this. We talk of,
1: about content creation and how Yeah. It's it's a pi- there's a content creation pipeline that you've built. And that and that's that's the fact that you're the one doing every stage stage of the content creation pipeline actually removes a lot of the complexity from the process. And yeah.
0: yeah. To give a a really good example of what you just mentioned, I used to be part of a really big team of modders, right? Um, which has its its pros and cons because it's uh it's not a paid spot mm-hmm. to be a modder. You don't make any money from it. Maybe you'll get a few donations. You know, a little bit here a little bit there if you're lucky and you're mm-hmm. really big so i can understand that there was a little bit of a a casual nature to being in a modding team but nevertheless we were a lot of people like more than 10 right maybe close to 20 even bigger than the actual team behind eu4 <laughs> um and the problem there was that you know we have this saying here in greece we say Where there's a lot of roosters, morning comes late. Because a lot of people have opinions on the same topic. (laughs)
1: That's an awesome saying. (laughs) Yeah, that is. I've never heard that before. That's amazing. It's true, though.
0: Like, for example, when uh, there's a lot of people who want to do something, um, or there's a lot of people who have conflicting feedback on something, that adds a lot more time to uh, uh, to the timetable necessary to produce something. When people... Are not motivated or busy or just don't want to like do their part of their pipeline. Your work will be late, mm-hmm. right? You know, for example, when I create a, a, a des- when I created a, a design and and the people in charge of reviewing it were like either busy or lazy or whatever. And I mean, it's, it's human normal to be lazy sometimes. I'm lazy sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that meant that my designer would sit idle for like a week yeah. or two. Yeah, yeah. You know? So when I'm alone, I don't have to wait for anyone. I don't have to depend on anyone. I would love to depend on someone who is equally as motivated and capable more than anything. But you know, it's just me. So. so that you said that
2: there's a couple other people that work with you regularly with, on Flavor Universalis.
0: Mm-hmm. On and um,
2: off, yeah. Um, that means that you've also had to engage in the space of leadership and in the space of trying to make that problem less impactful mm. you said you engage with some other people they do things like play testing and localization mm-hmm. and that sort of thing what's come up for you there because that does take you out of that like hey i'm just i'm just a multidisciplinary individual contributor like jack of all trades or at least enough trades that i can get this done to now i'm working with some other people who help me out
1: and and the need to lead them to yeah. a
2: degree, like like you're the you're the
1: visionary behind this product, and now these people are under your umbrella,
0: right? So, and they sometimes tell me things that I don't want to listen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, um, there are there will always be creative differences. There will always be a conflict of opinions when it comes to creating something so complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, What I've learned to do over the years is to respect the other person and not see them as inferior or superior They're my peer. They give me feedback. I respect the time that they put into giving me uh, Feedback time is one metric that I respect the most. So when someone puts their time into my design Ultimately, I see it as them trying to make my work better Why in the world? would I be mad at someone who is just trying to make my design, my tree, my code better. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I've completely detached myself from being, you know, this uh, egoistic guy who uh, does everything great. You know, If you have feedback for my work and you work with me, I will listen. Sometimes, half the times, more than half the times, not sure, I will abide by your feedback because your mm-hmm. feedback will be correct because it comes from a place of knowledge and respect, mutual. Uh, other times we'll discuss it uh, and we'll deduce that mm, maybe it's not a good idea to go through with that change or it will be uh, so um, so long as there is goodwill uh, and there is mutual respect, it doesn't matter how many mistakes I make or how much feedback I receive. It goes uh, smoother than butter. It it Mm -hmm. goes amazingly well. I'm really good friends with everyone in the team. I became so after so many months of working together.
1: You know, you have
0: obviously always since
1: the beginning had a vision for flavor. And uh, now that there's other people involved in it um, and you've learned probably, I would imagine over the last year, what it is more and more every day and like what it is and what it is not. And so there's this leadership function, like you hold that frame, you know, like, I actually remember I came into one of your, uh, discord chats at one point, And I remember you talking to some of the other folks in the room and you were discussing, um, ways in which to implement some of your ideas into the actual mission tree that you were working on at the time and one of the things that struck me was a couple things one of them was that you seemed to have very strong design sense about what was like a fun way to do something or what was like a, a weird like that's not going to work with that system or that's going to be um and, and i'm sorry i failed to remember specific examples but another thing i remember you doing was you were holding the frame in the room you're like, guys, remember, this is why we're here. This is what we're trying to accomplish. This is what good looks like. And and that to me is such a powerful aspect of leadership that you've clearly stepped into. What do, When you hear me say that, what comes up for you? What does that mean for you to, to lead and to hold that frame um, to sort of honor that vision of what flavor is?
0: Well, it's a very easy answer I can give is that when I say that I want to do something uh, and I want to create something, I do so by committing to, to upholding certain standards and sort of deliver what I promise. Because I, I take my promises very seriously. Like if I commit to doing uh, this mission tree, I will do anything in my power to get there. And, and when I when I have people over in a voice chat or wherever over DMs and they give me ideas, especially when there's like a lot of people involved, like when you joined, I know that sometimes, uh, you know, passion gets in the way, conversations get distracting, you know, we go a little bit astray. That's fine. We're people, we get to have a good time, but we need to stay focused on what's, what the task at hand is. Get that over with and then we can talk about my little pony about anything else you want, you know, but until we get to the point where I'm satisfied with whatever brainstorming, I had a brainstorming session. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's the one you're referring to, Yeah. but I was like, I wanted to hear from the community. What the heck do they expect from a dang French tree? You know, mm-hmm. like, cause France has a lot of history. We gotta sort of squeeze it in, you know? In a satisfactory degree, so I really like these sessions, uh, and I, I like having a firm hand on on the reins, you know, so it doesn't go too, it doesn't stray away too much.
1: Mm-hmm. And what are the lessons you feel that you've learned as a leader as you've gone through that, like about making trade-offs and about holding the vision and and all this stuff? What are some big takeaways?
0: You're gonna stay up during the night a lot (laughs) you're gonna have to I I remember uh, uh, my partner used to like come and tell me like come on man it's 4 a.m. like come to bed and I'm like no I have to finish this idea or so there's gonna be a big commitment Mm -hmm. um, uh, in, in terms of time and it requires a lot of discipline especially when you're alone uh, and it, it basically requires you to, the most basic and uh, functional, uh, the cornerstone, if you like, of of doing this well is for you to enjoy it. To put, like, each mission tree in my mod has a piece of my soul in it, you know. Because I, I only work on, on stuff that I like. And that's, like, a really good motivation for me to do to go the extra mile, if you like.
1: Um, So Will, you had mentioned that you had uh, a couple interesting stories you wanted to tell. Yeah,
0: Um, I started uh, coding. I remember I had a day job at the time and I was in the town hall working some boring desk job and we would have access to computers and I would use my, my downtime at work to design you know, for example, the, the French tree or whatever else I was doing. And then I would go home and I would continue my work there. Uh, the only problem was that at the time I had a really old computer uh, with a really old hard drive. And for those of you who don't know, you might listen to this for the first time. You might hear this, hear this for the first time. Um, and for those of you who know, you'll relate. Uh, you're going to have to restart the game a lot <laughs> when you, uh, code and you mod and it's not fun when, uh, when you restart and each restart takes a solid couple of minutes and and you have to restart like 50 times every 15 minutes. It's, uh, uh, so that's one of the anecdotal stories I had. Um, another one, uh, another really, really cool story is, One of the reasons I fell in love with the game even more was I participated at an educational tournament that Paradox had sponsored. It was in collaboration with a few universities in the Balkans, and I was graciously accepted to participate despite not being a member of any of these faculties, Um, and we we got to play once every week and after each game which lasted four hours we would have a two-hour lecture on the history of the period that we played at just before Um, and we would have presentations about the renaissance colonialism and we would also have to write a report uh, about how our country went during the game Uh, I made a lot of friends through that tournament and I even got to see them a few months later when we all had, all of us collectively, a meeting in uh, Belgrade, Serbia. So those are a couple of really nice stories that uh, I have in regards to the game. I'm jealous.
1: Every time I hear stories like that, it also reminds me of the, uh, the yearly like in the castle they've done in the castle in poland the so paradox has been doing this thing with eu4 ben where they bring a bunch of players together in the castle in poland and they have like a on-site lan like eu4 game um and i've just like I, i have to figure out a way to go to this this at least one year just sounds so fun
2: it's it you know it's funny i very early on i mentioned that um my brother got to suddenly be engaged with Paradox when he was doing that stuff with Magic Wizard Wars. And when you guys are telling these stories, it reminds me, um, they're not the only company probably that does stuff like that, but it's really cool that Paradox prioritizes that type of engagement with the community. And that sort of just elevation and giving lectures and things like that. That's it's It's not free to do that stuff. It actually is like a challenge and it can feel like a distraction but um, it's surprising how much that can build trust and um, rapport with the players that really, really love your your game and the experience. And so, yeah, it's, that's really cool. You said something at the very beginning. You were just like, well, Byzantium and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Aaron and I are both sort of more so Aaron than me, but we like history. Um, and you you casually mentioned, like, yeah, the Ottoman Empire was restricting the spice trade from the East. So that's one of the reasons that Europe went West. And I'm not saying I've never heard of that idea before, but just like, I was like, that is so cool, you know? And to think about like, I assume one of the things is that if it was Byzantium, they would have easily been trading with the, with Europe. And they are more likely to have allowed that trade through and tried to profit from it and whatnot. They certainly wouldn't have necessarily cut it off. Um, And how would that have changed history? But there's details like that that are just everywhere. Whenever I read any ancient history book, I am uh, or not not so ancient. Um, I was just curious, what's the most interesting fact about history you've discovered while researching your mission trees? Or maybe there's a couple. I don't know. There are a few.
0: Uh, I'll mention what comes in mind. So the first one is about a really weird... um, uh, sort of scientist, I guess you can say in the time of the Ottoman Empire uh, the Half of the the half point of the 15th century. I do not recall his name, but he was uh, He intended to build a rocket like an actual rocket um, And you know, I guess for his time maybe you can say he was the Elon Musk of his time <laughs> Uh, because he, he, uh, I, if I recall, he talked with, he spoke to Mehmet the the big man, uh, back then. And he said, uh, my dear Padesa, I would love to go to heaven and, and talk to Jesus, but briefly, not permanently. Um, and, and so Mehmet gave him his blessing and he conducted his experiment, of course, you know, I, as far as I know, he didn't speak to Jesus, but uh, he nevertheless conducted this, the experiment and was alive afterwards to talk about it.
2: So he actually uh, went up in a rocket and came down.
0: Yeah. Like he Whoa. probably sustained some injuries, I, I, <laughs> I reckon. But, um, and the second really cool thing that <laughs> oh I have gosh. in my. Yeah. <laughs> the second thing that I have in my trees is are you familiar with the office of the night?
1: Mm-mm,
0: no. Okay, so so the office of the night was sort of a leg- regulatory body in Florence in during the Renaissance that was in charge of uh, like taverns, gambling, prostitution. Uh, hence the name, office of the night. Right. And they were persecuting uh, people who were engaging in illegal activities like homosexuality or or. Uh, gambling illegal, illegal gambling and one of the people they always wanted to nail down but never could was leonardo da vinci because they always suspected him of being uh, implicit to one of these crimes and they were always chasing him like like arresting him but they never had enough uh enough uh, evidence to, to like, essentially say we got you you son of a bitch we got you Uh, Dead to rights Um, So that's definitely one other uh, Interesting thing now. What else could I say? Um, I Recently I worked on uh, my most recent update was a bit of a joke. I made it a sort of a, um, uh, a Showcase for paradox, but then people were like, oh my god, I want to play it. So I was like, all right We'll just release it for everyone. It was a pirate mission tree You get to play as a pirate nation and so the premise is that you start as any european nation you go to the bahamas you colonize it and then you get this beautiful event from the base game that i've modified to release the caribbean and play as uh, new providence which was one of the historical uh pirate nations and along the journey or rather the voyage in this case um you get these cool events about uh, legendary pirates, both historical and ahistorical. For example, you get Blackbeard, you get um, Mary Read, if you've watched uh, the show. Um, you get the, the Chinese pirate empress. Uh, you get uh, you even get figures like uh, Edward Kenway, if you've played the uh, Assassin's Creed IV Black Flag. He is the protagonist, right, and you great. get both him and his ship so every legendary figure comes with their like their ship uh and along the journey you get more and more and more and you sort of collect them uh and i, I really like that that part of the tree that's awesome that's awesome yeah dude that's really cool
1: so as we wrap things up i want to ask you one more question which is um what are you most excited about as your journey is shifting right now? So you're 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 you said you're in Barcelona right now, yeah?
0: No, not, no, not yet. yet? Okay. I will be there in about 6 days.
1: Okay. So you're you're moving to Barcelona, you're going to work for Paradox, you're it's official. You are a you are a mainstream game developer now. Congratulations to jo- <laughs> Congrat congratulations to jo- joining us and rolling in the mud. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, what's the what's so exciting for you right now or, or maybe uh, nerve wracking or both?
0: I, I don't feel nervous at all. I'm extremely confident in what I do. I am at peace with my limits and capabilities. Awesome. My only wish uh, uh, towards Paradox, if they happen to hear this, is please utilize me uh, well do not relegate me to localization duty. I, I don't mind writing localization. It's just that I feel like it's like, having, it's like having a really powerful chainsaw and then using it to cut straws, you know? Like, like put me to work, man. Like, I'll do good work, I promise. Fair enough.
1: Awesome. And, uh, and uh, what are you most excited about right now?
0: Um, definitely moving. A new yeah. part of my life is beginning yeah, yeah. Uh, the people i meet the connections i establish i like making friends i'm excited to see uh how weird the rest of the team is you know mm-hmm. like uh, do they stay in all day do they do they get like like breaks do they go outside do they touch grass uh <laughs> do they i there is actually um i was gonna move there i was gonna fly there on a saturday next saturday but the head of operations asked me to be there on a Friday because I'll, I'll fly there in the morning. So, like, I'll be there at 11 a.m., uh, settled in by 12. And then at 1 p.m., I they invited me to a company lunch uh, outside in some really nice burger restaurant. So I'll nice. go there, and that will be my first contact oh. with the team. And I am super. Superbly excited about that. That's amazing. Uh, the food, I mean, awesome.
2: Did you ever think when you started modding that you were going to end up working for the company
0: that made the game you modded? Hell no. As look, me, nah, nah. <laughs> Even the application was uh, a ha- sort of a joke. Not not like a joke joke, but like you know, eh, I, I got none to lose. You know, like if they <laughs> want me, you know, um, and then moonshot, literally, yeah and then and then when i got the you're, job, you're like that
1: ottoman rocket guy right now
0: <laughs> yeah literally <laughs> i'm gonna go talk to johan <laughs> uh, um and um, hope you survive too <laughs> uh, we'll see the out on that one um but what's funny about it is that um well I had the first interview, I was so nervous. I was like sweating, I was like too warm, you know, I was like 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 moving in the chair too much. Uh, so it went better than I expected, but still not great. And then the next interview would be sort of like a, a screening test to test my skills. But when they saw the work that I had attached with my application, they were like, hold on a minute, this guy is good. No need for screening test, go on to the next one onwards to johan so i go to johan and i talk to him you won't believe this and i'm gonna say this on the podcast but off the record uh i was late (laughs) i was late with the big man interview and um thankfully so was he (laughs) Uh,
2: so he was
0: more late than me so what he thought was (laughs) that i came and i saw that he wasn't here and then i left So he emailed me and he said, I'm sorry, I was caught up in a meeting and, and to my mind, I thought the interview was 40 minutes later. Uh, and I was like, Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I was late too, but it's fine. Let's do it. And then when I joined, I was like, so in such a rush because the camera was like all, all fucked up. And, and (laughs) the first thing he saw when I joined the call was my ceiling. (laughs) because <laughs> the camera was like tilted up and then i was like oh shit i'm sorry hello and i was like on the inside i was like
2: fuck i lost the job
0: <laughs> oh my god and and then i i and then i tried to show him the mission tree and i was like fumbling the mouse a little bit uh and then and then eu4 wouldn't turn on so on the inside i was like fucking Shit work. Uh, it's like the first time this happens and I was like, uh, I was like trying to make conversation and, and I was like, so anyway, how's your day? <laughs> I was like, oh man. And, um, and, and apparently, uh, at some point, uh, after I had the last interview, which I did really well in, which was like a cultural interview, like how do you handle a fire and, and conflict and all that? Um, that I got an email from the hiring, the recruiter who said, um, "Hey, I've been trying to call you uh, for the past half an hour. Uh, I would like to speak to you today or tomorrow, if possible." And then my my heart was like, "Oh my God, what do they want? What is it?" Like, I mean, then I, my brain said, "They wouldn't call you to say that they don't want you." Yeah. <laughs> right. So so then I was like, my first like instinct would say, wait a minute, how do you have my phone number? But then I remembered like my CV uh, and then I was like, I sent, I sent this poor woman and she was very sweet. I sent her like three emails in five seconds. The first one was, oh, I'm sorry, I'm here now. And then the second one was, uh, would you like to talk through Google meets? And then the last one was, oh, I see my phone is just dead. <laughs> you can call me again. And so we ended up like hosting a call on, on Google Meets and um and she told me about the job and I was like like the smile was like I had my Joker moment during the interview it was like the smile was like all the way up here and um uh and then she told me that well of course when we saw like your 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 C V and what you've worked on, like we know who you are. You're like a superstar. And the moment I heard that I was like oh my God, you said that. Okay. All right. Like Okay, I do. I do. Take me. I'm yours. <laughs> um, and, and, then, and then I was like, damn, you know, all right. I guess the interviews didn't go as bad as I thought, I guess. Or everyone else was really bad. So. <laughs> <laughs> if
2: they accepted
0: uh, me, what did everybody else do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What the hell?
2: No, I bet it was amazing. Yeah, it was okay. It's really it cool was, again that they can look past some of the, like, oh, his camera was not aimed right and all that stuff. It's yeah. like that stuff doesn't matter. Yeah. It's important. That's it awesome. is
0: somewhat okay now. Though, for the record, that's the angle I go for most of the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: well that's that's uh, awesome to hear. Um and uh I'm I'm so happy for you. Um I know that's a lot of hard work that's led up to this point. So
0: I'm really happy to be where I am. And thank you for having me in the podcast.
2: Yeah,
1: thank you for joining us. Our
2: our pleasure. It was fun talking. It was fun talking and learning.
1: Yeah, and now now we have a man on the inside so you can start poking Johan. Maybe we can talk to him about some Paradox stuff too.
0: Um, right. oh, absolutely.
1: Like, um, so thanks again for joining us. Um, Will, it's such a pleasure to chat with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and thanks everyone who is listening. Um, we'll see you next time on Building Better Games. Thanks for listening to Building Better Games with Aaron and Ben. If you have comments, questions, or would like to work with Ben and Aaron, shoot an email to info at com. That's info at V-A-L-A-R-I-N dot com. Please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Valarin Inc. We'll catch you next
0: time.